Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes all over the world. And today we have an amazing returning guest. He was part of our More Than a Diabetic series back at the end of 2020, Dr. Roy Collins. He's also the fourth. So we got two fourths <laughs> on, on the podcast today. This podcast is about Texas excellence. We got yep. Houston represented here from Dr. Collins, from Roy. You are a Stanford chief resident. You are an MD, MPH, and a sports psychiatrist. And we're going to dig into the psychology of performance. We're going to talk about your career as an athlete. Uh, you're mm -hmm. a Yale man and a Stanford man. Like, you know, this is a, this is a resume that is envied, bro. I'm just, uh, I'm psyched to have you on, uh, and man, just shout out to uh, you for representing what people with diabetes can do. I also wanted to shout you out because uh, I know you're dealing with a little bit of an injury setback as well. So I want to wish you well, make sure everything's good on your recovery thank from you. the Achilles. It hurt thank my heart you, when you. I saw you post that. I was like, oh, my guy's down, <laughs> but you know, Hey, it's a long road back, but hopefully all is well. Appreciate that, man. Yeah. We're. We're recovering. Surgery was in mid-February. PT has been going well. Fall of performance has been going well. So hopefully I'll, I'll be on the court there with you soon. I love it. I love it, man. Well, let's kind of start where we normally start because obviously, you know, we have been linked up because of diabetes. And mm -hmm. I think it was even like end of 2021. It was the first like virtual beyond type one JDRF type one nation kind of gathering uh, mm -hmm. virtually that where we met and obviously just, just clicked right away and, yep. you know, real excited to kind of see what you've been up to since then, but give us your diagnosis story. And also like you, you and I are one of the rare people that were on the game plan T1D podcast. I, I, I discovered. So shout nice. out to early diabetes podcast days, early diabetes podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me on. It's great to connect with you and Eritrea as well. The, the diabetic online social media community has, has been really cool to, to kind of dip in and out of and, you know, it's always a pleasure talking to y'all. So my diagnosis story, just real quick, I was 13, almost 14 years old. I had the very familiar week long of being really thirsty all the time, going to the bathroom about every hour or so. We were really sure what's going on. My mother is a pediatrician, so she did kind of catch on that something might be happening here. And so we went ahead and got checked out after after a few days of that and, and got the diagnosis. So it was, it was a real, you know, shock to my system. No one in my family has type one. I do had uh, my grandfather who, who passed, did have type two. So I used to see him, you know, checking finger sticks and sometimes at, at the breakfast table. And there's a lot of kind of sugar-free things in that house. And so I remember that a little bit, but otherwise it, it was, it was you know, fairly random up in the air. And so um, it was the fall, actually, of my eighth grade year, and I was really getting into sports. So I remember the first thing I asked my pediatrician is, can I still play football? And when they said yes, I was just like, cool. I don't really need to know really anything else. No no further questions. I'll get to that whole insulin and carb counting thing a little bit later. But, you know, it, it's been interesting that that happened as I was getting into sports because sports performance and diabetes has always sort of been interlocked with me and, and really kind of driven my, my passion to, to learn more about how the body works and, and how we can kind of improve upon the ways in which we want to get better and improve better. It really is interesting, like how parallel that can be like with preparation, because we talk about diabetes, really adding an extra step to everything that you do. And something that sounds very familiar. And I've talked a lot about on the podcast is very similar to you. Like when they said that I could 
there was a path where I could still play basketball. That was kind of all I needed to hear. And I treated it as like a filter to get what I wanted. Like my diabetes management was just another step in that performance hierarchy of, you know, how I get to, to my goals. So, you know, 13, 14 years old, eighth grade, like that's a tough time to, to get diagnosed. And, and often we see, you know, sort of the bell curve of, of diabetes outcomes, like difficult times and eight from an A1C outcomes perspective in those teen years. How did you, you know, did you have any trouble with that or, you know, what, did sports kind of like allow you to really, again, like set that foundation of like what you were looking for and what you were trying to achieve and diabetes just kind of became a part of that? It was really difficult because I, that's a lot of life to have had already, a lot of bad habits to have had. But at the time, you know, my favorite foods are you know, waffles for breakfast and drinking a lot of juice and sodas like a lot of kids do at that time. So it was difficult to then try and fit diabetes into all of that when, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. It's also a tough time because I'm a rebellious adolescent and I just want to kind of go off my own and, and just do whatever. And so to try and be regimented and calculated wasn't nearly as important to me at that time as, as just kind of hanging out and, and, and doing what I like to do, especially when it came to sports. So, you know, it's interesting at that time, you know, I, I've like, I'm fairly physically large and athletic and all that kind of, kind of great stuff. A lot of stuff, sports that like, kind of come naturally to me. And I tried to have that same kind of lazy affair in my approach with, with diabetes at the same time. So it wasn't until I got to college where, you know, all of a sudden those, those margins get real thin and you got to be really regimented about what you do and, and, and take real art and, and time to, to get well, well at your craft that I got better, not only in sports, but also in managing my diabetes. And there were also real stakes at that time too. So when I was in high school, you know, the, the coaches I had, the, you know, minimal kind of athletic training staff I had, they didn't really, they weren't as well, well-versed in diabetes. And so they really kind of left up to me to sort of say, you know, are you good? Yes or no. I would always say yes, <laughs> even if I wasn't really good mm. um, and just kind of leave it on me. But at the college level, they were a little bit more well-versed. There was a lot more bodies, a lot more staff that could, you know, sort of focus in on me. They would test my blood sugar. And if it wasn't a good number, they, they would pull me. So there were real stakes again into whether or not I could participate. And that really gave the onus to, to sort of hone in on, on what, what I needed to do, be a lot more regimented, like I said, prepare a lot more, be a lot more thoughtful about what my schedule is and my day was so I could stay on the field and participate as much as I can. Talk to me a little bit about like the recruiting process and the diabetes role in that. I, I sort of lucked out. My parents and I just decided if I was going to go spend four years somewhere that we should be upfront and kind of transparent with the fact that I was living with diabetes and very similar to what you said, like I, I made it clear to the training staffs and coaches that I talked to that I was managing it well, and it wasn't going to be an obstacle, but it was something that, you know, we would have to deal with on a daily basis. It, are you comfortable with that? That was kind of like a, you know, the starting point. How, how did you guys approach that from a recruiting standpoint? And was there anything about Yale other than the obvious things that, that made you feel like that was going to be a better place for you and, and your diabetes? Yeah, to be honest, there was definitely some fear around, you know, being upfront about it. I didn't want anyone to see it as a weakness, uh, to see there's a reason why they shouldn't recruit me. And so just my general attitude with diabetes at the time was like very much internalized. I didn't really talk to a lot of people about it. You could ask me about it, right? I would have an insulin pump and people will ask me, you know, while I was not yet a doctor cared on an actual beeper, whether or not I had a beeper on me. When I would say, no, you idiot, that's not a, that's not a beef, that's not a pump, and, and kind of go along. But otherwise, it wasn't really something that I was very upfront about. Um, I would say 
what was really, you know, beautiful and serendipitous is that I went to Yale that has an amazing diabetes center, juvenile diabetes center, and and was able to kind of kind of maintain my care there and get tuned in there. So it really did work out. And like I said, I, I think I really lucked out again with just having a very knowledgeable staff. But as I already got to college and, you know, was sort of talking around with other athletes, just kind of getting a sense of, you know, who these other destinations, what the coaches of the destinations that I could have ended up in were like, I also think I lucked out there too, because there were definitely some coaches and some teams within my league, even where I feel like it would have been really held against me if I needed to, you know, take time to deal with the low blood sugar or if there were any issues I was dealing with. I never, in my experience in college, had a hell against me. It was, you know, we wanted to make sure that he's, you know, ready to play as, as, as often as you can. And, and I feel like I had a, a, a fair opportunity at every moment and was able to kind of progress into the starting roles and whatnot. Um, but I don't think that would have been the case everywhere at that time. So it kind of worked out so differently. But I remember at the time of recruiting, being, being a little bit nervous about it for sure. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Like, especially as an athlete where you're trying to not hide, but you're trying to thrive in spite of your limitations and weaknesses. And I think as a young athlete, especially, you know, you start to become just a number and it's like a little bit of a cattle call in terms of there's so many athletes from all over who are competing for these limited number of spots. And there is a healthy fear and anxiety of, is my diabetes going to be held against me when all other things are equal? And, you know, my perspective on that was to try to just get ahead of it in the conversation and say, Hey, like, yes, this is part of it, but look what I'm still able to do. And, you know, I'm still, I'm managing this and I'm still on paper, just as good as the rest of these guys. And so, you know, you can trust me to be part of that. And, you know, similarly though, like at the next level, going to the next, like next level, I did not tell people because I, you know, there's plenty of reasons why Rob, how the pro could, could get cut. And most of them were just, I don't play defense, but the other parts of them were like, <laughs> I, I didn't want diabetes to be a part of that. So yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I, I'm glad that it worked out serendipitously for you. Was there anything like in that adjustment? I think like, and and we can talk about this more as we get into the sports psychology mm-hmm. and like your actual work today. Cause I know you, you talk with like the freshman classes that come into Stanford, you know, you mm-hmm. are, you're part of their sort of onboarding. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a time where, you know, diabetes sort of got in the way or you had like a learning experience about like when you go from high school where it's kind of just laissez-faire and you get by on talent, you think you're working hard, then you go to college and it's like, oh, this whole system and all these guys have been doing it for a long time and are a totally different level. Yeah. So yes and yes. Um, definitely from a, just a strictly like a playing perspective. I, I always, I'll, I'll always remember that first day walking into the gym. So before we've had a practice, we were, we were lifting and just seeing all these grown adults <laughs> just throwing weights around grunting yeah. you know way bigger than than anyone in my you know small high school looked like and and just sort of saying like oh, okay no this this is real this is a different level from where I came and yeah again my approach was was just really sloppy and just kind of unregimented at, at that time and so as I you know, sort of got hit by the whirlwind of what college sports could be you know and again I, I was able to sort of own in on my craft and sort of get better diabetes was a big part of that and so it, it went from trying to just, you know, eat, eat sort of whatever I want and kind of hope for the best on the insulin front to being really thoughtful about, okay, like this, this is what my needs are. This is what my schedule is going to be. I need to think about also because I'm, I'm a collegiate student athlete. So not only what, what class and, or not only what workouts and practice are going to be, but what class is going to fit in there too. Do I need to walk across campus and maybe up a hill like they were at, at Yale with the kind of pre-med science classes? Um, how is that going to kind of work in, you know, what sort of 
you know, macronutrients and carbs, fats and proteins are going to help you kind of get through the day and be, be regular. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, but the Cook Notes version is I just ate very similar things when I knew that the steaks were important because I didn't want to take those risks. Yeah, I totally. I think, I mean, I think like minimizing those variables and trying to plan around it. And at the same time, you know, like college, I don't know, we can talk about this too. Like that transition from, I don't know. I'm just trying to trying to put you guys as listeners into the like mindset of an athlete. And we've talked about it before. Not, not as many of, of like, not as many episodes about this more recently, but when you're in that mode where you're trying to get recruited, you have this sort of apex alpha mentality where you kind of have to not be denied and just show up and perform on a regular basis with pretty thin margins. Like you, you know, it's either succeed or fail in a small period of time. And then, you know, you've got the success, you get on, you get a spot at the next level. And during the recruiting process, they're so happy for you. They're excited. They're going to get you in. They're going to make it work. And then uh, it totally flips on its head on day one, where you have to now make it work according to, you know, the d- demands of your schedule, not only for coursework and being a good, a- a good student and having people checking in on you, making sure, you know, at least for me, like freshman, we had to sit in the front row of the class and my coach was a psycho, a real sicko. He would walk around peeking <laughs> the door. And if you weren't in the front row, like that would be like, he would just like look at you and then you'd know that it was on later that day. And then, you know, going to the physical aspect and kind of balancing that, um, you know, it's, it can be, a, it's really tough. And like you said, like mm-hmm. you just named four or five things just right off the top of your head that you had to keep in mind and balance. Mm-hmm. So all of that is going into your sports performance and you're having yeah. to balance that just as a student athlete, but also the diabetes is ever present. Anything you remember? Yeah, I, of- I, I sort of talk about the, that, that change of the coach's mentality. So I, I had a real, a real showman of a coach, you know, he would uh, like, you know, kiss my mom in the cheek and be all cuddly and friendly. And then the first time, I didn't run to the line. I got cursed out so hard. And I was just like, oh, what, what happened to Mr. Cuddly over there? Who was who was just telling my mom we're going to take care of your boy? Uh, all of a sudden, you know, now I'm the worst person on the planet. So, you know, funny how things change up. That recruiting process and our coaching process are two completely different personalities. Well, and it's tough because at that point, you know, you're kind of just one of the guys. They've already got you where they want. And now you've got to maximize that potential. And there's sort of a fear, you know, ruling mentality where it's like, cause you know, there's a hundred guys out there who are just as qualified that can take that spot and take that scholarship. And you're, you know, especially, you know, at an Ivy league school at like a school, an institution like Yale, where, you know, how many people would say they would want to go there? Like there's a long list of people who couldn't be there. So that's also hanging in the balance. And, you know, they play with that emotion. They know that, you know, they got, they got you right where they want you. They hugged your mom, kissed your mom on the cheek. And then, you know, Hey, there's a bus ticket waiting on you. If you don't do what we say, if you don't get on that line and run with like your life depended on it yep. for you, like how, how did you respond in that kind of culture? Did, did that get the best out of you? As you look back, you know, for me, my, my coach was very old school as I, as I look at some of these, you know, amazing leaders and coaches today and these philosophies and, you know, organizations that have and employ guys like yourself who are invested in that holistic approach. Uh, is there anything like positives, negatives that you take that you took out of your experience that you can pass on down to the sort of next generation? Yeah, I, I would say that style, it was, it was stern, but it was fair. You know, I, I did feel as though at least. And, you know, I can't speak for everyone's experience with over 100 guys on the team. But, you know, for me and in, in my journey, and even doing two, two different coaching regimes, I feel like I always had a fair opportunity to showcase myself. And I didn't mind, you know, a, a harder kind of straighter edge approach, you know, because it's direct. It's kind of no nonsense. And, and that does I do respond really well to that. But, you know, something that very interesting that was, that was passed along from there was there would be a drill that we would do in the middle of practice where, you know, in the middle of 
uh, either some kind of individual drill or kind of like maybe half a team drill. Our head coach would blow the air horn three times and say sudden change. And all of a sudden we had to, you know, run to wherever kind of both the offense and defense were. And then we'd have some sort of, you know, like an event. So it's, it's maybe fourth and, and one for the game and, and, you know, loser has to some kind of punishment, usually running or something like that. Right. And it definitely would, would wear on you when <laughs> you're in the middle of something important or you're just tired. It's been a long day. And also you hear the, the three horns and you got to, you know, you add this tableau your response. All of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm activated. I'm kind of looking around for what's going on. But to be honest, that, that amount of training really did help. And that, that being able to not be focused on whatever I'm doing in the moment and kind of adjust to what's happening next, I think applies really well to, to diabetes, to medicine, to all aspects of their life where, you know, you think it's going to go one way and then all of a sudden you need to suddenly change and adjust your mindset show up for, for whatever kind of adverse situation is happening next. So I think that's something that I definitely really appreciate from that time that I definitely carry with me in my, my life now. That's a really like tangible metaphor, right? For, for life with diabetes. Cause like, just when you think you got to figure it figured out or just, you know, something typically will go crazy. Right. And you have mm -hmm. to manage that change and, you know, that sort of like holistic term change management. Like how do you respond when things don't go the way that you plan? And this is actually a really great segue. Um, into talking about your professional life as well and and talking mm -hmm. let's let's dig into like sports performance so i'll share a little bit of a personal anecdote after my freshman year of college i like had totally lost my confidence i had i had been through it like that i hadn't necessarily responded in the way that um you know looking back i just might have not been ready and i might not have been mature enough to go in i think i had expectations where you know, going to a division two school, I was like, okay, well, I was recruited by these D1s. I'm going to go in here. I'm going to dominate on from day one. It's not going to be a big deal. And then I show up and I've got four teammates who are in their early twenties. So they're just physically six, five years older than me and have that life experience as well. They were just tougher guys. And, you know, my college trajectory that ended up taking like your typical, you know, take your lumps your first couple of years. And then you finally, you know, get to, you know, be a junior and senior and do really well. Uh, mm -hmm. But in those first years, I en ended up going to you know, being a training partner down at IMG Academy for some pre-draft guys. And I mm -hmm. got to experience a mental strength and conditioning coach at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and to shout out to, to Josh down there, he's no longer with IMG, but he was there at the time and really mm -hmm. introduced me to this concept of like the zone. And I saw a couple, maybe, maybe a year or so ago, you had posted that you were reading a book called Mind Gym, which my, my dad had bought for me at the time. And anyway, talking about like the just the mental performance aspect of like hitting a game winner or, you know, you hear yeah. the, quote, the quotes from Michael Jordan and such where, you know, th the reason that I'm able to be successful at the buzzer is because I've seen myself do this time mm -hmm. after time mm -hmm. after time. I've mm -hmm. put in the reps. I trust the work that I've done. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, that was a change for me where, you know, in high school, you put in a little bit of work that you think is hard work and you're better than everybody else because everybody's pretty much not doing, not putting any work in. Then you get to the next level and there's those real psychos who are, you know, the first in the gym and the last one to leave. And they're really like driven by that opportunity to be better. Right. So understanding that and unpacking it and learning like, you know, how that preparation can make you more successful in, in performance and understanding like just even trying too hard might be interfering with your ability to perform how how did you come across like you know sports performance and sports psychiatry and sports psychology as as part of your you know what what you wanted to do with your career? Yeah, yeah, I would say that there's also some serendipity there as well. I knew that finishing so when you when you stop when you retire quote unquote from sports, 
but, you know, they say athletes kind of die through death, right? Like it's a, it's a major change in your identity. And it, it, it was definitely a difficult one because on, on the one hand, I didn't have that same physical outlet for stress that I did before. So I found myself, especially those that initial year, just like having all this just kind of pent up energy. I didn't know where, where to go. You know, lifting wasn't quite fulfilling it. Basketball wasn't quite fulfilling it. Um, I got into boxing for a little while because that that kind of did scratch the itch a little bit. But the other part was just like, I just have this brain full of knowledge and experiences and I don't know where to put it, right? It's hard not to be like old, you know, glory, glory days guy, you know, talking about wearing his boxy letter jacket and, you know, talk about scoring four touchdowns for Polk High, right? I so, did rock in high school. Want to check tape? You know, like, yeah, yeah. I, you, you never want to be that guy. I think like that's, and I'm so glad you brought this up. This is something that I have talked a little bit about on the podcast, but in my personal relationships is more important because guys like us, like, I, I think it's easy to look at former athletes and people who are successful outside of the sport, but for every story like yours, a, a, you know, a real success story, there are stories of, of people who were great athletes and got out and didn't know what to do and didn't know what to do with themselves. Some of them get into trouble. Some of them go soul searching mm-hmm. and you just never mm-hmm. really find that, that place and they kind of bounce around for a while. And part mm-hmm. of what I have come to realize is as an athlete for my, my own story was, Hey, from the time I was 13 to the time I was 23, there was somebody in my life, whether I knew it or not, who was responsible for my development, whether that mm-hmm. was a coach or a teacher mm-hmm. or a tutor or a trainer or whatever the case may be. And then you get done with that and you go into the real world and your first boss is is not your coach. They're not your team manager. They're, they have their own life and, and their own career. Hopefully they're helping you along the way, but like their number one priority is themselves. And that's sort of the truth of the real world. Right. So right. I find that a lot of guys like just aren't used to that, especially, you know, if they weren't conscious of it, we just thought that, Hey, there's always going to be somebody there to tell us where to go and try to help us be the best version of ourselves that we can be. So anyway, that was a little bit of a of a detour, but like you know, it's it's good to hear like even people like yourself who are, you know, men of Yale, men of Stanford, you know, masters of their own domain, still also struggle with that and like are look for that outlet and even you know experiment with whether weightlifting or boxing or or another sport and just doesn't really scratch the itch for you. Yeah, yeah, and I would say the other piece of that too was just like the individual nature, like was. And, and be, kind of be able to be creative. So like a, being a self-starter didn't come as naturally to me because as you mentioned, I was following someone else's plan, someone else's orders, someone else's direction for you know the most formative years of my life. Um, and so kind of going out there and it's like, now what do you want to do? It's like, what do you mean what do I want to do? You mean there's not you know some sort of way I need to hit or you know some sort of play I need to learn or do whatever. It, it was It's something that I still to this day have to be a lot more deliberate and intentional about because again, I was kind of a perfect soldier for all those years. And so getting out of that is, is has, has been interesting and, and, you know, I have to, have to use a different kind of part of my brain. So, you know, to kind of get back to my story a bit. So I, I knew that just because of this wealth of experiences and knowledge that I had, if there was an opportunity to apply it into some sort of athletic or, or sport context, I would definitely, you know, thought about doing so being like a endocrinologist, a diabetes doctor. But what I really found was mental health was just so interesting to me. And my dad gave me some great advice as I was trying to kind of pick my specialty. He said, what would you be thrilled about reading into the into the night, like one, two o'clock in the morning? And that was mental health for me. And so I actually initially really enjoyed working with veterans because kind of working in that context reminded me a lot of the locker room. And so I was like, okay, these guys and I, even though we have wildly different experiences, I did not serve, right? But we kind of in the same way they have a camaraderie in the same way that i can really appreciate 
football and the military are purposefully, you know, very aligned. And then it was when I was starting to look at different programs, I, I started looking at Stanford, I found the sports psychiatry program that said, okay, this is it, this is perfect for me. And luckily that's been my experience. So it's, it's been a, a great outlet for the wealth experiences I had as I talked to not only football players, but varsity athletes, you know, all throughout Stanford um, who really appreciate that I have literally gone through what, they're, what they've gone through, right? So I'm, I went to a top-notch school where I had to be both a student and an athlete, you know, while also trying to perform to be my best. You know, I, I say now that just having taken organic chemistry while I was playing football is worth way more than anything I actually learned from organic chemistry. Um, so they, they definitely appreciate where I'm coming from, and, and I get to sort of relate, you know, not make it about myself, but just kind of understand, you know, meet them where they are and then help them help them improve. Well, I think, too, like being able to say, like, hey, just what you shared, it's not what you're learning in organic chemistry. It's that you just continually have to, you have two giant challenges happening at the same time, intense demands for your attention and time. And mm -hmm. you've got to be successful in both ways. Right. Uh, I, I often say like, you know, I'll never have a boss as hard or, you know, as tough on me as my coach was who knew me intimately enough to do that. And so as a result, whatever challenges I come across, like I'm so grateful to have that context because, you know, I see people all the time, like dealing with this adversity and they don't have a foundation like I had or preparation to succeed in that way. And, you know, you know, prepare and rely on, you know, and recover and, and then get back up and do it again. So I'm sure that's like an incredible resource for your athletes. When you're talking with your athletes, like, you know, what are some of the sort of common anxieties or, you know, common, maybe even fears or, or struggles that, that you're encountering in, in your work? Yeah. So, you know, one of them that comes up is what we were talking about earlier. So intimately about that shift from high school to college, right? So everyone I worked with was that guy or that girl, wherever they came from. And, and then having to get that sometimes more harsh reality check of, of coming to college. And so, you know, that that's one that comes to mind right off the bat. Definitely performance anxiety is, is one that's very kind of common in this space. Again, these are student athletes who are trying to manage their their schedules and their days. They're trying to manage a, a really intense full-time job when you think of the hours that, that go into varsity sports at the collegiate level, as, as well as their kind of academic pursuits. And so sometimes it's as simple as just helping them, you know, manage their, their schedule, telling them to use the calendar, not try to keep everything up here um, like you think you want to do. Because, again, these are very high performing folks that, you know, have a lot of ego and keep everything up there. And and then it can be also, you know, interpersonal things, self-confidence things. So, you know, the, the gambit of, of issues that really affect a, a, a lot of people in the world. Right. But these are folks who, you know, the stakes are such that they need to regulate themselves in a way where they're going to perform on so many fronts at the same time. And they're, you know, so new, young and so new. So it's been really exciting to help them. Well, and you said it, man, like, and especially at Stanford, like I can't even claim to know a 10th of what's that, what that's like in terms of people coming from being Mr. That guy or Mr. That girl, both in the classroom and on the field mm -hmm. or court, and mm -hmm. then coming to a place where literally that like everybody is that <laughs> so right, it's just like right you know right. and you know when you think about you know iron sharpening iron something I, I really do believe in and you know a, a close friend of mine who was a co-worker of mine at the uh, an intern with me at the olympics at my at my time there uh mm -hmm. went to stanford he's like man my first day on the job i walked into my first staff meeting and condoleezza rice was leading it and he's like i just realized then i'm in a different place like this is just different yeah and so like you know, the, the, the struggles like are, I think are across the board of, of athletes and like making that transition is just even, even more magnified. So I think it is important to talk about, like even these people mm -hmm. who are, you know, top 10, everything, 
are, you know, still dealing with those same very human transitional difficulties. Yeah, I'll, I'll even lend some game right now. You know, something that comes up a lot is people playing the comparison game and feeling like an imposter because they feel like they don't compare and they don't measure up to, you know, the very skilled people around them. And so oftentimes I'll sort of hold them to it a little bit and say, okay, well, describe exactly what it is that you feel like you don't measure up in, right? And they'll describe, you know, someone is so good at at maybe this class and this person is really good at their sport in this way. And this person has a lot of friends and this person, you know, is is actually uh, maybe deeply religious or spiritual, right? And, and they kind of feel like they're not any of those things. And so I'll say, right, are, are you making this kind of Voltron, Megazord, you know, singular person that you're not? Because that's not fair, right? But I bet if you were to compare all the different traits of yourself to them, I bet you find some things that you actually might be maybe better at more, or more comfortable kind of where you're, where you're at. And you're kind of only thinking about the best part of that person and the best part about a collective of people rather and, and, and making kind of an unfair comparison to yourself. So once you sort of actually, you know, go through the, the reality situation instead of just the insecurity that you feel, you know, you realize actually I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not that bad. Is that just awareness and recognition? Is that just something that I think we is learned, you know, and in the environment like that just sort of breeds? Because I feel like let's tie it back to diabetes and in the Mm -hmm. online community, I think it's really easy to follow a bunch of accounts who share the blood sugars that they want to share. And then you're like, well, Mm -hmm. this person has, you know, seemingly has great blood sugars all the time and I'm not even doing half the things they're doing. And you start to really build that like sort of negative thought flow, because I I also want to talk about, you know, your work, like, and and the idea of the zone, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, this high performance area where, you're, you're solely focused and you're not thinking about those anxieties and those things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've talked a lot about this podcast about comparison being the thief of joy, but it's, it's nice to see that right. it's not just outside of diabetes. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of holistic. Yeah, most definitely. I think social media lends itself to exactly that. Right. So, you know, you show the best sides of yourself and then you who have a holistic you know view of, of your own self then are comparing yourself to others who are only kind of showing the highlight reel. Right. And so if, if everyone had to, you know, wake up and show their morning blood sugar every single day, right, I, I bet you feel a lot better about your own self and your own control when you got to see everything that was going on in somebody else's life, right? All the different scars. And so, you know, one thing I've, I've actually appreciated about the diabetic community is, is there being a push to be kind of more forthright and more sort of open and honest. I think that is helpful. And so, you know, yeah, comparison with people joy, certainly, I think it's, it's very natural for us to, as we're kind of self, self-assessing to, you know, maybe inappropriately look at, look elsewhere for, for what we're kind of comparing ourselves towards. But I think kind of being real and, and folks being upfront, which again, I really appreciate is, is helpful. And then I think internally as, as someone who may have a propensity to, to compare themselves, you know, need to be, you know, honest about, Hey, I, I shouldn't compare myself to the highlights of somebody else. I do think too, it's just a natural human thing to compare yourself and to want Definitely. to, and to want to be better, want to improve. And, you know, like you said, sometimes that imposter syndrome is really just us not looking as closely at our own accomplishments or our own resume, Mm -hmm. uh, as close as we look at other people's and, you know, really Mm -hmm. taking that internal journey. You recently spoke at a JDRF type one nation summit in Northern California. You know, how, how does your, how do your talks from, you know, in the sports world with your athletes kind of differ from your, from your talks with people with diabetes? Luckily they're starting to to merge together. (laughs) So I, I would say, you know, one one ways in which they have, have started to kind of be the same, you know, I am the same person, right? I'm the same diabetic, I'm the same athlete. And so I, I lean heavily in my own experiences. 
again, it's, it's a way, as we talked about earlier, to use the wealth of experience and knowledge that I have in a way that I think is positive. And so on the diabetes front, right, I, I talk about a lot of the you know, mental exhaustion, the burnout that, that comes, you know, with dealing with another full-time job, which is managing diabetes. And on, on the sports side, right, I'm trying to get people to manage all of the factors that can affect their psyche, affect their performance. And I think as, as I continue to do this, those talks will be very similar, kind of go along the same because they, they utilize a lot of the same tools. So again, not comparing yourself to others, sort of, you know, stopping vicious negative cycles, you know, that make you feel really bad about yourself and really kind of objectively looking at the facts of the situation. And then emotional regulation, you know, comes up in both. So we are, again, moving very closely to the same point and that's exciting and honestly a lot easier for me. I'm I'm with it, man. I I uh, I think sometimes it takes a while to, for us to like accept our experience as like really relevant to a lot of different areas. And you know, for me specifically, I just had to remember ultimately I'm an athlete, and like that is in my DNA, and and that is what makes me happy. And you know, like you were talking about after your after your career, your retirement, you sort of the athlete part of you dies. And I tried to kill that part of me hard. I was like, I don't want to rely on this. I don't want to be just the jock guy that everybody, you know, knows used to play sports and rocked in high school. But then I kind of came back around. I was like, oh, I can't just close off this part of myself. It it is who I am and is part of what makes me relatable to people. And you know, I think like over over time I've become more comfortable with it. And it's benefited me to connect with people like you and and others in the community where yeah, that shared experience makes us who we are. And there's no sense in us like denying it because, you know, we just have to accept it as, as true. And ultimately, I think it can lead us down, you know, a path where we're, you know, connecting with people more authentically. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't have to tell you about all of my high school glory stories, but I will try to beat you with every sport that we play, right? So if you go bowling, like I'm trying to win, we play ping pong, I'm trying to win, we play putt putt. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to win. So I think we can never exactly kill those, you know, aspects of, the, of make us what who we are. Shout out Herm Edwards. You play to win the game, baby. You play Absolutely. to win the game. If we're going to play, we got to try to win. No, I'm with you, man. Can we chill on the winning? There's say. also just enjoying. I'm sorry. Like, it's just, I've let this go on for long enough. Like, two star athletes, I get it. But there are some things we can just also enjoy. You don't have to win everything to enjoy it. Can that also be fair? Actually, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit because I'm a little, I'm getting long in the tooth. I'm a little bit older now. So, you know, I'm not. I'm not living and dying with every men's league basketball game. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I got more important shit to worry about. Pardon my language, parents and caregivers. So like I said, sometimes I was like sitting there on the bench the other day. I was like, man, my, all this like mental health work that I'm doing is really affecting my like killer instinct on the, in my men's league games. I was like, I really, you know, this, I don't live and die by this anymore. At the same time, I still mad upset when we don't win. So, you know, just a nice little balance there. It's weird. Imagine being happy that being unhappy that you're less toxic about like, I don't know, I just feel like you can win at life and still lose at bowling on your date. You know, like, it's okay. I don't know. I and it's just I, not, I not suppose it, I guess I'll just never know because I'll be trying to win. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I have a friend like, anytime he goes on a date with a girl, he's like, I don't give a single crap. Like, I'm still gonna beat you every single time. I'm like, do you not realize that that makes girls not want to go on dates with you? He's like, I don't care. Like, I'm a winner. And I need you to know that. Hey, you just gotta find the right date. Because my wife washes me at bowling every time we go. (laughs) Shout out Erica. She worked at a bowling alley when she was in high school. And she's put in the time. And I'm just fraud. You know, ultimately, she just bodies Oh my god, now we have to set up the time to go bowling together. Because I need to watch you lose at something. Dear God, it's all I want for this Ramadan. But yeah. (laughs) Uh, so I do want to talk about like performance in general. So, you know, 
we're softening the edges. We're talking a lot about mental health. I think we're finally sort of as a society seeing the mind body connection more holistically mm-hmm. and broad awareness. So for you, like as you're preparing your athletes and you're, you know, working, you know, with your, you know, in your talks, like how do you, how, what are some of the steps and some of the like tactics that you give folks to, you know, to be successful in those high performance scenarios and situations? Amazing segue from our very previous conversation. I, I think it's all about sort of being present and and being a certain way between the lines, right? So not being toxic and, and letting past experiences affect you, your present performance, not being too worried about the future and not kind of carrying what happens between the lines, you know, into your personal life, annoying, you know, your characters in the world when you're trying to be competitive all the time and, and nonstop, right? But but being who you are and being focused in that quote unquote zone that we talk about. So well, a lot of the different techniques from sort of breathing and and being kind of grounded as well have to do with with kind of being here in the present, right? So when you think about anxieties, right, you're sort of worried about the future, right? When you think about, you know, sort of slumping and, and kind of not being who you are, you're, you're thinking about the past and you're not being able to kind of concentrate and be here in the moment. So, you know, we can definitely get more into it, but I would say, you know, very briefly, being present in the moment is, is something that we focus on. And I think that is something you know, not to be, you know, the, the old guy yelling at technology, but it's like, there's so many things taking us out of the present moment in our day-to-day life. We can get a work text or like teams or Slack or email late at night, right before we go to bed, that can trigger us or send us into a cycle of negative thinking or, you know, make Mm -hmm. us upset. Uh, And I think like setting boundaries is really important, Mm -hmm. but you know, you know, we really are sort of in this societal time where there's a war on our attention and, mm-hmm. you know, for me, when I think of the, the, the best moments of my life where, you know, either, not even outside of performance are the moments where I was the most present. I try to remind myself on a, on a daily basis to just be where my feet are and mm-hmm. remember that, you know, my life is happening now. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. And, mm-hmm. you know, the experiences that I have also matter. So like, you know, just life is this very sort of long, holistic, weird experience that we're in all the time, but we got to remember that we're there. And I remember this quote, well, two, two examples. I, I remember reading a quote from an interview with Matthew McConaughey, right in the, in the heat of the McConaissance, like right when he was like, you know, about to win best actor and he was yeah. on true detective and they were like, wow, where was this guy doing rom-coms? You know, where did he come from? Right, right, right. And he talked about being present as a talent and like growing your talent for being more present in every situation. And, you know, that really stuck with me because I had never seen it as a skill or a talent that could be developed. And mm-hmm. I think like that, that really helped me. And then it just reinforced it when the last dance came out during COVID and somebody on the, on the show said that Michael Jordan was just the most present person they had ever been around. And he, wherever he was, he was a hundred percent there all the time. And so you mm-hmm. think about that type, that as a skill of being present and being in, in the flow, in the scenario, like not distracted, full attention, and when I think of those moments in my life where I felt the most successful, I got the most gratification out of what I was doing. I those are where I'm solely focused. I'm not distracted. I'm not multitasking. I'm just solely focused on that moment. Right, I love that right, you guys right. are saying this, but and we have Roy here, so I'm just gonna poke at it a little bit. But is that actually possible when you're living a life with diabetes? Because I feel like we're in the background running so many scenarios, like or. I could be in this meeting right now in this awesome recording, getting so much knowledge, but my pump is beeping. So how, I guess, Roy, can one stay 
super, super present, even though diabetes feels like it's like impending doom at all times in a way. Yeah. yeah so the other piece is preparation. So I think that when you were talking about, you know, in an in exact moment, how can you bring yourself from a very activated, from a very fearful, from a very anxious place, right? Coming back down will help. But what will also help in the, for the background is being prepared for the moment. So whether it's diabetes or whether it's sports, that that's where sort of preparation, getting the reps in early, kind of concentrating on the front end so you can just kind of be present in the back end is where that comes into play. So on the, on the sports side, right, we, we talk about visualization, kind of being being thoughtful about, you know, details, right? Like what is the arena going to look like? That's why you do a walkthrough on the field before you actually play the game, right? You want to kind of know, okay, you know, this is where my bench is going to be. This is what the lines look like. This is how far I am from the stands. This is what the, the air above me is, is going to look like in, during the game time, right? And the diabetes is something very similar. So, you know, I, I recommend people take time to be thoughtful about their week, right? So for me, kind of at the beginning, maybe Sunday or Monday, I'm, I'm thoughtful about what the week is looking like, what I want to get done as far as exercise, as part of my schedule. Am I doing, you know, anything kind of late in the evening, or early in the morning? And I'm kind of setting, I'm, I'm visualizing what that what that will be. And I'm kind of, you know, setting the agenda and setting myself up for success there. So again, a lot of similar ways in which we take time to prepare, right? So that in the moment, we can kind of focus on what we're going to focus on. I love that. And and I also want to make a connection back to kind of performance and, and diabetes is you're not going to be successful all the time. You know, you mm -hmm. in, in basketball, the best shooters shoot 40%, meaning they miss six out of 10. And so mm -hmm. I think we got to have a little bit of a short memory on some of those like diabetes mess ups. Like, obviously we got to be careful because it's life. It really is life and death. But mm -hmm. if you miss, if you miss a bolus or you miscount some carbs, failure is not final. It's not mm -hmm. fatal, you know? And I think we can like be, we can say, Hey, what can I learn from this? How can I prepare better next time? Right. And, you know, just if we're going to keep in, in the sports world, like John Wooden that talks about, you know, the, the will to win is only exceeded by the preparation to win and setting yourself up. So whether that's traveling and like bringing extra supplies or taking a look at your battery at the beginning of the week and wondering if you're gonna have to change that pump or charge that pump in Eritrea's case, like all mm -hmm. those things I think are, as my pump goes off and like trying to be present in this because my sensor mm -hmm. is updating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There, there are these like inevitable interruptions how can we address them and then get back to you know stay keep the main thing the main thing so to speak mm -hmm. uh, whether you're juggling a lot of meetings or your class or classes or you know anxieties personal or professional you know i think like trying to keep that main thing the main thing is is uh, is key definitely all right and, so and acting, go ahead i was gonna say and you know acting in opposite of maybe what your your intention may be so you know if, if you are someone who like you're having an adverse event, right? You're having a high or a low blood sugar that, that's causing you, you know, a lot of fear or making you want to withdraw and making you quit, right? So purposely doing the opposite. Well, you know, the the science kind of shows that will make you sort of feel better emotionally about the situation and be able to kind of take it on easier. So, you know, not kind of following that very primal kind of animalistic urge to just like rage and quit, right? Doing the opposite, kind of staying with it is helpful as well. Let's let's dig into that a little bit because I think you know, so much of that is like, like you said, primal animalistic is like part of our DNA. And mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about like doing the opposite. Like, so when we feel bad or we feel like tired, for example, and maybe instead we go for a walk, is that, is mm -hmm. that a good example of like hey, being able to reverse that thinking course? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and our emotions will change along with our actions. So we're we're kind of faking it till we make it on that front, but eventually we'll at the very least kind of mitigate that really stronger emotion that we're feeling and on the positive side even feel better about it and feel differently. So just really kind of you know swimming upstream a bit is again an, an opportunity where kind of putting energy in the front end will be helpful in the back end. So making sure that we're not just totally given into, you know, the insecurities and the negative emotions that we feel, but we kind of act in opposite will we'll bring, you know, opposite results and, and better outcome. Well, I think too, and this is something that we've talked about previously on, on podcasts. And I've been thinking about just in my personal life as well Is like your brain and your body are part of one thing, but your mind is separate, but they're connected. And so, you know, like in sports, you would talk about uh, like during a difficult practice, like your mind is telling you to stop, but your body has the ability to keep going. And so you're right. doing the opposite, right? You're going and pushing your limits. So it, right. it is really interesting how sort of one follows the other. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, just you, you feel tired, you feel like my blood sugar is high. I'm having an adverse reaction. Okay, cool. But I'm going to walk because I know that uh, if I walk, then, you know, I can become more insulin sensitive and maybe that'll affect my mood. And maybe I can get that, you know, momentum started. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So it's forcing yourself to do things you don't want to necessarily do. This is like the epitome of stuff that I'm bad at. <laughs> and I'm sure other people with diabetes can relate. Like, I don't know. It just, it's, it's set. It, I feel like we're making it sound really easy, but it can be hard for some folks. Says easy, says easy, does hard. Oh, you're just very in your same, same, but different vibe today, Rob. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, I'm just like trying to, I'm just trying to be Phil Jackson. I'm just trying, trying to wear wild outfits and, and mm-hmm. still be respected. I think that's my, that's my, that's my ultimate goal. But no, I, I mean, we're kind of in this and I obviously am a huge proponent of this, but like we're sort of in like cold shower, cold plunge culture where we're willing to do hard things. And we're trying to like, you know, extol the virtues of getting outside your comfort zone and doing things that don't really make logical sense. So that when we encounter hard things in our lives, we have a framework of how to how to overcome those things. If you're Phil Jackson, I think Eritrea is Rick Fox. What do you think? I like it. I like it. It's Not the Rick hair. Fox. It's the hair. This is, I'm, I hate y'all. <laughs> We're gonna have to fight now. Oh, I'm ready. This is so good. He's this such is a so D-list good. celebrity at this point. That, that, no. That's multi. That's multi champion Rick Fox to you. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can all be so lucky. I'm going to keep uh, my Lakers slander to myself anyway. I, I could do a whole other podcast on Rick Fox's like post post show interviews from winning time. I don't know if it, that's a very niche reference, but uh, yeah, my man is out there thriving. Just know that. Just know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a compliment. So Roy, like what, what's next for you? Where can people find you? I know you're on the speaking circuit. Definitely want to have you back here on the podcast to talk about, to continue to talk about, you know, performance and diabetes and, I want to support that. Where can people find you? So I, I kind of keep my website as like a, a living CV of kind of what I'm up to. So you can find me there, RoyCollinsMD.com on the socials. I'm sure we'll, we'll post my socials on here. You know, I, I will likely be be sticking around here in the California and in, in this space. So um, definitely follow up with next. I have some cool things in the junket um, that I'm excited to talk to you next time you invite me on. Well, absolutely, man. We will be happy to have you. And man, I do want to encourage you like that. That injury is going to be, it's going to be in the past very soon. And if you're anything like me, man, I, I used to, after my like ankle surgeries, I just wanted to be able to get out there and do something again and feel like, yeah. feel like myself. And so 
that's back to that point. Like I'm not as, I'm not as hardcore crazy about winning as much as I used to be because I'm so grateful just to be out there. So mm-hmm. uh, I know that's coming for you, man. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. As, as we age, a lot more work is going to go into, you know, just maintenance, you know, and recovery and, and all that great stuff. So we are not, not just popping up as we, as we fall down, like we used to, but it does, I do feel very in tune with myself right now as I'm getting back into things as well. So, you know, good things are going on coming up. Well, good, man. We're cheering for you and uh, looking forward to seeing what you're up to. And hey, thanks again for the time, my friend. And uh, give him a follow, Dr. C on social, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Y'all take care. Thank you.